Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today we'll be talking to Isaac Campos about his new book, Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Isaac Campos, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you and have read your book, Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs. Before we get to the book, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your academic background is, and what, what brought you to write this book. Sure, no problem. Um, well, I'm a historian. I'm a historian of Mexico. Um, my job title is actually of Latin America, but I'm a specialist on Mexico. I actually began my, in graduate school, however, I was interested in doing international history, which is the field that was once called diplomatic history and and is now called international, um, to try to make it a little more inclusive than it used to be. Um, And that's actually what got me interested in studying the history of illicit drugs. I was interested in working on the war on drugs as an international phenomenon. But what ended up happening is I learned more about the war on drugs um, and began reading more about the, you know, reading more of the literature on the history of the war on drugs in North America, I recognized that there was almost nothing that had been written on the early history of the war on drugs, drug uh, prohibitionist policies and so forth in Mexico um, in the early 20th, 19th century, etc. So we really had no idea what the foundations were of Mexico's drug policy in the 20th century. And there were there were a lot of uh, uh, assumptions out there about what had been Mexican policy. Most of those suggesting that everything that had occurred in Mexico had happened because the United States had forced it to happen. Um, but we really didn't have much research, so that's how I ended up actually becoming a Mexicanist rather than an international historian. Uh, and uh, ultimately, we ended up writing this book on uh, the history of marijuana rather than the war on drugs in general, uh, for various reasons that I can go into if you're interested. Yeah, let's yeah. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. And like much uh, good writing about political science is being done by non-trained political scientists. And what your contribution is as a historian, I think, is really important. And what we learn about the specific policy area, but also a little bit about the transmission of of what we know about policy, I think, is also um, the you can really gather that from this book. So let's actually get into the book, which which I really enjoyed uh, reading. Um, in the start of the book, you tell uh, the story of the assassin's legend and Sylvestre de Sacy. Uh-huh. Am I saying his name right? I believe it's de Sassy, but I'm no de- French speaker, so I could be wrong too. So somewhere in between these is, is this legend. Uh-huh. And, and this sets the stage for the Western descriptions of cannabis. I wonder if you could recount a bit about this assassin's legend and its significance for establishing a foundation for your book. Sure. Well, this is um, I talk about the assassin's legend in a chapter where I describe, as you know, the larger global history of 
of cannabis and the development of ideas about cannabis around the world. So um, I actually begin the book by not talking a whole lot about Mexico, just so that I can set the stage. So let me, if I can just back up a little bit just to set this up. Um, Please. uh, The book introduces, there's a major question at the center of the book, as you know, which is uh, that if we go back and look at all the records we can find about marijuana in Mexico from the middle of the 19th century up until it was prohibited nationwide in 1920, marijuana was overwhelmingly associated with two effects in Mexico. It was overwhelmingly associated with violence and madness. And in fact, not only was it overwhelmingly associated with violence and madness, but there were almost no other, um, there was no counter discourse to this idea. So there were, it was never, essentially never reported that marijuana actually had any positive effects on people. And, um, and the vast, vast majority of, of uh, reports suggest that it created these quite extraordinary effects. Um, and usually the kind of violent madness we're talking about uh, was when someone would smoke a few, have a few, um, you know, tokes from a marijuana cigarette, and then they would wind up becoming um, violently mad, um, usually acting like a wild beast, running down the street with a knife and that sort of thing and stabbing people to death, anybody nearby. Um, so what I try to do in the book is explain how this idea developed in Mexico. And one of the first things I do is I look into the pharmacology of cannabis, but also at the larger global history to ask the question of whether or not these kinds of descriptions had occurred anywhere else. Uh, and I actually find that marijuana had been associated with madness all over the world, really, and at various points in time. Um, but then there were also, of course, some key moments and some key ideas that helped to spawn and to, um, well, it helped to serve as the foundation of this idea of what we now call reefer madness in the U.S. Um, throughout the world and, and in certain areas in, in, in the West in particular. And one of those is this, is this essay by um, Sylvester de Sassy, who was one of the, maybe the preeminent Orientalist in Europe in the 19th century. And um, he wrote an essay about the origins of the word assassin, which um, it turned out were connected to a um, particular sect called the Ismailis in the in the Middle East, um, and this story is actually pretty well known. It 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 um, if you read most popular histories about marijuana, they will mention the assassin legend because it it the assassin legend came to be um, recycled over and over again well into the 20th century, particularly by the, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the United States, Harry Anslinger. In fact, he wrote a um, very important essay in the mid-30s as he was trying to get marijuana prohibited on the federal level in the U.S. Uh, called Marijuana Assassin of Youth, and he was clearly um, he was clearly referring specifically to this, this old legend. Um, the short uh, version of this, I've already made it very long, but the short version of this is essentially that... Um, that the word assassin derived from this sect that in the um, 11th, 12th centuries used to use a kind of um, uh, uh, form of public assassination as their main uh, uh, form of, uh, of um, political violence, essentially. So I, I call them essentially the world's most famous suicide bombers, which is what they were. Um, and um, it turned out that these people were called the Hashishans, at the time. Uh, why that is isn't exactly clear, but um, that word hashishin, which is connected to the word hashish, which is a form of cannabis used in, in, in that part of the world, uh, wound up serving as the foundation of the word assassin in English. Uh, and uh, there's a long story about this that Marco Polo recounted that supposedly there was an old man of the mountain who, um, who would drug young men uh, with a certain potion and then they, he would bring them into these sumptuous gardens and give them all the pleasures of the world there, virgins and this and that. Uh, rivers of, of milk and honey and that kind of thing. And then he would um, 
um, drug them again and take them out of the palace, and they would wake up to uh, they would wake up to the incredible disappointment of the real world. And then he would tell them that he could send them back to this great paradise um, if he would if they would carry out assassinations for them. And supposedly he could um, get them to do just these extraordinary assassinations that would always result in them being killed because they were assassinations against you know very public and important figures. Uh, and so this was ultimately the 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 um, uh, foundation of this word assassins. And this later by Western sources, particularly people like, by, like Harry Anslinger, but others as well, uh, Westerners started connecting the, the um, origins of this word to somehow that um, they were called assassins because, or they had become assassins because they were using hashish, which caused this kind of violent behavior. Um, so this is um, uh, just one thread in the development of this larger idea that um, really exists in many parts of the world that marijuana caused a kind of or cannabis. It was only called marijuana in Mexico uh, originally. Uh, that cannabis caused a kind of violent violence um, and you know this sort of violent behavior. Yeah, this uh, and you cover a lot of ground in the early parts of the book. A lot of uh, ground in terms of time and also sort of movement around, but. By the second chapter, you end up in Mexico, and and uh, I thought that um, it was really interesting for someone who doesn't study uh, Mexico, the way in which you you explained the integration of these uh, these different cultures, and so you you described European, indigenous, and African cultures coming together in Spanish colonization in Mexico, and one of the things you were talking about was um, that they were diverse but similar in many ways in terms of their, their view towards medicine and drugs. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, those, not necessarily the three cultures, but the way in which they were similar in terms of their views of medicine and drugs. Sure. Well, they, um, the idea of that chapter is to try to show that, can, so cannabis was brought to um, the New World by the Spanish originally in the 1530s, and it was brought as, a, as an industrial fiber. Uh, but it was gradually incorporated into um, local pharmacopoeias in Mexico. And um, what I try to show in that chapter is that as it became incorporated into those local pharmacopoeias, it also became incorporated into the very controversial world that was um, medical and religious practice. And so what I the similarities between the three major cultural groups there in in New Spain, which is what Mexico was called under the during the colonial period, the the three major um, the main similarity is that all three cultures had a view of of uh, illness that combined both kind of what we would call rational understandings um, and um, and the supernatural. So um, illness was understood to be something that was connected both to um, a sort of modern rational uh, processes and also to the gods in some way. And and um, and so this led to the sphere of medical practice being a very controversial one in New Spain because, of course, the Spanish had, you know, were engaged in two kinds of conquest. One was a political, but one the other was a spiritual. And um, once the Inquisition got underway in New Spain. Um, medical practice winds up being a major point of emphasis for the inquisitors because um, this is where you you see a lot of the connection between uh, the supernatural and rational ideas. And in Mexico, of course, this was particularly acute because Mexico is the world's richest country in hallucinogenic drugs. And many of those hallucinogens, things like peyote, uh, olaliqui, uh, various uh, other kinds of hallucinogenic mushrooms were used in both medical and religious practice, usually both at the same time, medical slash religious practice, um, by Indians in Mexico in particular. 
And uh, this was extremely controversial. So the Inquisition has already banned peyote in Mexico in 1620. And various other hallucinogenic drugs of the same kind, you know, similar properties uh, were banned over these centuries. And um, cannabis winds up getting mixed up in all of that. And um, and uh, so this is uh, this is what leads me to talk about this, this this sphere during the colonial period. Yeah. And, and this some of the parallels between the treatment of the different types of drugs and the world we live in now is, I think, you know, obviously with kind of the context in which this book can be placed. Uh, in 2012. Maybe we can get to that in a little bit. Okay. But you told some really interesting stories about some of the, the people who feature in in uh, Mexican history, and one of them was about uh, Jose Antonio Elzate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you'd talk about who he was and what made him important to the story you tell. Sure. Well, Elzate is um, he's um, one of the great Enlightenment figures of uh, colonial New Spain. So he was... Um, like so many intellectuals of the middle and late 18th century, he was uh, um, deeply influenced by, you know, the Enlightenment. And he was, um, interestingly, and, and which was also typical for the Spanish Empire, he was also a priest. So he was both a priest and a scientific thinker, which kind of parallels this uh, history of medicine that we were just talking about in New Spain. And Alzate began publishing his own scientific journals um, in the 1760s and 1770s. And he would write about all sorts of different things. His main area of uh, scientific area was in uh, astronomy, but he would publish about, like so many people of that era, just about anything uh, from zoology to, to astronomy to everything in between. And uh, he winds up writing a very fascinating paper about the um, a, a somewhat um, notorious drug in Mexico that was not very well understood called the Pipilzinsinsles, which was a Nahuatl word meaning uh, the most noble princes. Now, the Pipilzinsles first appear in any records in Mexico in the 1690s. Um, that's when they first begin appearing in Inquisition, uh, in Inquisition files. And uh, there's also a published book in that, in that decade that mentions Pipilzinsles. And they wind up being a major point of emphasis for uh, the Inquisitors, but also there, there are a couple of bands put out by uh, the Archbishop of Mexico and various other things. And um, these were this was a drug that was said to behave on people or uh, um, to act on people um, very much like peyote did or some of these other drugs that I've already mentioned. So that is, it was seen to be a substance that was used by Indians supposedly to help them commune with the supernatural. And um, it was also reputed, supposedly, to make people uh, mad, make them go mad. And so Alzate, being the Enlightenment figure that he was, um, decides to go and try to figure out what the people who seen sleeves are. Nobody knows what their real identity is. And he goes down to one of the um, uh, herb dealers in Mexico, these um, usually women who would sit on the streets and sell uh, medicinal products. And he asks for a sample of the people who seen sleeves. And uh, they give him a, a, what essentially turned out to be a handful of, of seeds and leaves that he looked at and he said he recognized it as looking like classic European hemp, that is cannabis. Um, now, this becomes especially interesting because he not only recognizes that these leaves and seeds look like cannabis, but he decides to try to verify it, being the great scientist that he was, and he goes home and he plants them in his garden. And sure enough, within not very much time, uh, classic European cannabis emerges in his garden. And it turns out that one, at least one of the idea, identities of the people in seeds leaves in Mexico was actually cannabis. He ends up going back to his library and searching some of the sources to see if uh, the effects that are attributed to cannabis 
uh, or excuse me, the people that seen sleeves could be the product of cannabis, and he concludes that indeed they could because he reads some of these European sources from the um, uh, from that period that suggested that marijuana that uh, cannabis could cause uh, could cause madness and other um, uh, somewhat uh, alarming effects. Um, now, what's especially interesting about the story is not, so he's essentially the first person to discover the use of um, of cannabis in local pharmacopoeias in Mexico. Number one, number two, he's the first person to report that cannabis was supposedly causing um, violent or uh, causing a certain kind of madness in Mexico. So already in the 1770s, you have this association with madness and cannabis in Mexico. Um, uh, but thirdly, it was very interesting his argument about all this, which was that. Uh, that while it was obviously very uh, a real problem for the spiritual, both the physical and spiritual health of Indians that they were using this drug in this manner, uh, his argument of how to deal with this was not to prohibit the people in Sinsleys, uh, which had already been done by church authorities, uh, but, uh, that they shouldn't prohibit the people in Sinsleys, but actually just explain to Indians that the, the effects of, of this cannabis were perfectly natural and normal, so that that way they would stop... Um, using the drug to commune with uh, the supernatural, because he argued that if they, if you were to tell them that that the problem with this is that it was the product of the devil, then they would just be more interested in it and want to use it more. <laughs> Which hmm. so uh, a very early example of someone arguing that prohibitionist policies actually uh, make people want to use the substances that are prohibited more than uh, than actually uh, uh, deterring their use. Right. Was he in conversation with with uh, figures from the time period? In other countries, is is he that is his uh, work and, and reputation and, and stature such that he's in in sort of open dialogue with scientists elsewhere? Um, to a certain extent, though, um, and um, I'm not a, an expert on this field, but I think of this had something to do with the fact that the you know the Enlightenment was a somewhat dicey um, uh, dicier proposition in uh, in you know Catholic. Uh, very Catholic Spain than in, than in other places in the world. So um, his work was, um, you know, he had to be very careful about the way he uh, he proposed things. He'd actually had his his journal shut down uh, once or twice, um, and so he was in some conversation. But that essay about the people's sincerities is. Um, is a is a rare one, and almost no one has ever cited it. There's an article mm. in the late '70s, a Mexican uh, ethnobotanist cited the article, uh, but other than that, I'd never seen anyone cite it before I uh, came across it uh, in the archive. Yeah, and uh, let me let's talk a little bit about what you actually did. Um, use a method that's that's familiar to political scientists to analyze newspapers in Chapter Four. Uh-huh. Why don't you tell us what you did and, yeah, sure. and what you what you found? All right. Well, one of the problems that I encountered from the very beginning in researching this topic, and one of the things that made me actually uh, especially interested to keep working on it, was that when I went into the archives in Mexico, I had a really hard time finding any references to marijuana in the 19th and early 20th century. This was kind of a surprise. It was the first important finding because the literature in the United States um, on marijuana's history has long suggested that marijuana use was extremely common in Mexico and that it was Mexicans who um, began coming across the border in the 1910s. And because marijuana use was so common among them, this created a kind of reaction among uh, people north of the border to prohibit the drug because it was associated so closely with Mexicans and they were so, so uh, using it so commonly. Um, but what I actually found at the beginning was it was actually really, really hard to find any references to marijuana use. And so this led me in the when I, you know, in the early days when I was working on this project to spend an enormous amount of time working through newspapers manually, the old fashioned way, um, 
when I began this project, there wasn't a single Mexican newspaper from the era that had even been indexed, um, much mm. less digitized. So um, this was literally, you know, taking a sample of the newspaper and just going page by page looking for references to marijuana. Um, right as I was getting ready to publish the book, uh, a new uh, set of digitized Mexican newspapers became available. It's a partnership between the Center for Research Libraries and um, and I forget the name of the other. Anyway, I cite it in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, and that um, opened up about 13 newspapers that were, that were suddenly totally digitized from this era and allowed me to suddenly do a kind of quantitative discourse analysis on the development of uh, the discourse surrounding marijuana in Mexico. Um, this, to my knowledge, is the first time this has ever been done in, in um, the field of certainly Mexican history. Um, surely somebody's done something like this in U.S. history where this kind of thing has been uh, more available, these kinds of digitized resources. Um, but in Mexican history, this had never been done. This had just become available, and it was ideally suited to the topic that I was dealing with because so much of the research was like you know, searching for a needle in a haystack. And this not only allowed me to find all the needles in the haystack, but um, allowed me to quantify how the discourse developed over time. And what I ended up finding was really quite fascinating. I found that um, over 70% of all the references to the effects of marijuana in these newspapers between the 1850s and 1920, over 70% referred to the effects of marijuana as either being violence or madness or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and among all the other effects, um, there wasn't a single one of them that could be considered to have been you know, seen as a positive effect um, during that period. I mean, literally, there was not a single newspaper article that suggested that marijuana had positive effects. And, uh, and furthermore, even more extraordinary, it seemed to me, was that there was not a single article that suggested that some of the really wild and outlandish accounts of marijuana's effect, there wasn't a single article that suggested that those were exaggerations. Um, and this is especially weird because this was a period of... Um, a lot of journalistic competition in Mexico where newspapers would routinely call each other out for, um, for exaggerating or sensationalizing or what have you. And, um, and during this period, there isn't a single uh, published account that suggests that people are exaggerating about marijuana's effects, even though marijuana is usually being described as making people into violent maniacs. <laughs> so, um, so that was quite fascinating and a really wonderful demonstration of how um, – these new digital technologies are allowing us to really understand certain aspects, especially subaltern aspects of history that previously were just, you know, impossible to get a, a real grasp on. Um, yeah. And, I, and yeah. I'll also add, I, I was able to use the same kind of technology to trace the movement of these ideas from Mexico to the United States beginning in the 1890s. So I show actually that um, Mexican influence was actually very important in the development of the idea of reefer madness in the United States, but not because... Mexicans were coming to the U.S. smoking marijuana, but because their ideas were beginning to filter into the United States informally through the through the press beginning in the 1890s, and that's again something that was pretty much impossible to document prior to these these uh, new digitized databases. Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book were these illustrations that you you include in a couple of chapters, particularly in chapter five, and a little bit little bit hard to to describe them, but maybe if if you could. Try to describe one of these uh, really interesting, evocative uh, figures, 110, 111 in the book, um, and and what what they how they fit into the 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 narrative. Some of it coming across in in newspapers that you describe, okay, um, but also these visual representations of the you know this this forming myth about marijuana and marijuana usage. Um, 
how do you get your hands on these? Are these were these readily available? Yeah. Um, well, the images you're referring to are lithographs that were produced by uh, a lithographer who much of your audience has probably seen his work but may not know his name. Uh, his name was Jose Guadalupe Posada, and he was active in the late 19th century. I think he died in 1913. He produced thousands of lithographs during this period. Anyone who's seen the kind of classic um, uh, lithographs of skeletons, you know, the, some of the famous ones have skeletons dancing at parties or playing the guitar or what have you. Um, these were all productions of, of Posada in the late 19th and early 20th century. And Posada winds up being really important to my book because... Um, while I'm able to do this wonderful um, quantitative discourse analysis, the problem with the quantitative discourse analysis in 19th century Mexico is that 90% of Mexicans were illiterate. <laughs> and so um, you, we, in order to get a feel for what ordinary Mexicans were um, you know, hearing about cannabis, you have to get away from some, uh, you know, from the written press. Now, some of the written press was, you know, obviously filtering out to people uh, through, you know, people who would read newspapers on corners and that kind of thing. But more importantly, was the kind of work that Posada did, which was these penny pet press lithographs that would usually uh, reproduce the same kind, the same exact same stories that were appearing in the uh, regular press. Um, at the same time. And uh, the images you're referring to specifically here demonstrate, are, are part of a chapter that's demonstrating that the ideas about marijuana's effects were not actually that unusual in Mexico. So one of the things I try to explain, or, or, I try to explain not only where these ideas came from in Mexico, but why they seemed so believable. And one of the reasons they seem so believable is because they fit right into larger discourses about the effects of drugs in general. Um, and by drugs, I mean not only the drugs we consider illicit today, but also alcohol, which was the the, the main drug of abuse in Mexico as it is today. Um, and uh, Posada, it turns out, would represent this kind, the kind of violent madness that could accompany um, drug use, but also just madness in general. Um, he represented in ways that were ex very, very similar to what was being represented in the press. Um, with as much sensationalism in, in, in most cases. And uh, these representations um, suggest that uh, ordinary folk, and this, and I have other sources that, that suggest this as well, that ordinary folk were seeing, you know, were understood the effects of these drugs to be very similar to the way that elites did. So this was not a top-down process where, where ideas were imposed from above um, suggesting to people that this is the kind of effects that marijuana had. But in fact, I show in the book that in many ways... Um, this may have, may have been as bottom up as it was top down, and uh, yeah, and so that's the that, that's the way I use those. Yeah, they're, they're really. I think it's just one of the you know great parts of an academic book to have to have these kind of visuals. I think it was really enjoyable. So, so let's get to what the Mexican government actually does. And so, when does the government actually step in and begin to formally regulate marijuana? And what was their initial method of regulation? What what were they doing? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the first ban that I'm aware of in Mexico on um, on marijuana itself. So we have this, people's seasons are banned by the church in the late 18th century, um, and the Inquisition is interested in them before that, and that is, um, we could call that a cannabis ban, but it wasn't always cannabis. The people's seasons were sometimes another drug as well, as I describe in the book. So the real first formal ban on cannabis that I'm aware of uh, occurred in Mexico City, um, in the 1860s, in 1869. And um, these kinds of bans were, um, this was a ban on the sale of cannabis. 
Um, so you weren't allowed to sell, um, and in some in some states and municipalities, you would get bans on cultivation as well, and then sometimes more rarely on use. Um, one has to understand that in the late 19th century, um, old-fashioned liberalism was uh, dominant in Mexico, and the idea that you could ban someone from using a drug was a somewhat radical idea at the time. Uh, gradually, that uh, things developed, so it didn't seem so radical anymore. But at the time, that was a very radical idea. Um, these were the first, you know, specific bans on the use of marijuana in Mexico. There were also pharmacy regulations, which are the real foundations of modern drug prohibition. And these actually got off to, a, a, these were had a very early start in Mexico, not so much for cannabis, but more generally for drugs of abuse, things like uh, the opiates, morphine in particular, and, uh, and then eventually cocaine once it was discovered and so forth, and so on and so forth. Um, so these were the two main kinds of regulations that existed in Mexico prior to 1920, these uh, local and state bans. You couldn't have federal bans because the 1857 Constitution of Mexico was a, a very uh, a powerfully federalist document that uh, made it impossible to make a nationwide prohibition of this kind. But you could have local and state prohibitions. And then we also have these uh, pharmacy regulations, which were also on the uh, state and local level. And... Um, and uh, these were the things that first regulated cannabis and and uh, and other drugs. And these actually, most of these appeared prior to similar prohibitions in the United States. So as I argue, and I show quite clearly in the book, Mexico's the foundations of Mexico's war on drugs actually were there prior to the United States becoming interested in all in this kind of thing, at all in this kind of thing. And Mexico actually had the kind of regulations that would be demanded by international treaties on drugs uh, before the United States had them. Um, so the idea that the United States forced all this stuff on Mexico is is quite clearly false uh, when one looks at these early regulations. Yeah, and without giving away too many of the, the blockbuster parts of the, the, the book, oh, what's, sort of what, what's the case, what's the case to, uh, for the transmission of the ideas? If this is sort of the central thesis of the book, that, mm -hmm. that the, this, this idea, this, this regime of policy regulation didn't, in fact, move from north-south, but, but may have moved in the opposite direction. What's, what's fundamentally your case? Uh, do you mean specifically about drug regulation or about these ideas with respect to marijuana? Uh, the, the drug regulation. Okay. Um, is, is there a case to be made of, of the, the idea of the prohibitions and, and the, the focus move from Mexico to the U.S., or is it, is it the, the, the path less... Less direct. Well, no, I don't think the prohibitions themselves. Um, you could you could make the argument that in the early 20th century, as people in the United States first started hearing about marijuana, one of the things that they were learning about it when they learned about its effects was also they were learning that it was also that it was already prohibited in Mexico. Um, so you could make the argument that as people in the U.S. were learning that marijuana had bad effects, they were learning that this was also a prohibited drug south of the border. But you couldn't argue that, um, that the United States copied Mexico's drug policies. Instead, what I would argue is that um, what so often happens in, in the modern world is that these kinds of um, developments with respect to pharmacy and drug regulations began appearing in lots of places around the same time. So they weren't just invented in one place and spread elsewhere. Um, you wind up having, um, there's actually a historian named Lauren Benton who has um, argued that uh, modern history is full of what she calls wormholes, which is mm -hmm. um, you wind up having the development of very similar processes in multiple places at the same time. And it appears there must be a connection between these two places, but there's no clear direct link 
Um, they're just is uh, these things cropping up, popping up at the same time because people in different parts of the world are dealing with very, very similar processes. Um, right. So things related to industrialization and modernization or urbanization and so on and so forth. Um, and so these things start cro- um, cropping up in Mexico in part because of the Spanish influence. So the Spanish in the early modern era were actually ahead of most of the rest of Europe on matters of uh, pharmacy and medical regulation. And this was in part a product of having been colonized by the, you know, the, the Muslim uh, conquerors for uh, several centuries prior to the, to the um, you know, 16th century. And, um, and so the Spanish were ahead, were already regulating medicine and pharmacy well through the colonial period. And this gives Mexico kind of a, a, a head start on all these things that would become, um, you know, the standard way of dealing with the, the distribution of dangerous drugs during the 19th and early 20th century. I think it's quite a, um, you know, the basic foundation of this, the idea that there should be restrictions on the distribution of certain dangerous substances is a pretty logical um, conclusion to come to that, you know, um, as drugs start being mass marketed in the 19th century and so on and so forth. Um, what changes is that what's really important, the most important developments, I think, that in turning this from a reasonable um, regulatory regime into a war on drugs is the fetishizing of certain drugs. And that's where I would say that, so the fetishizing of uh, the opiates and cocaine and marijuana, right? Those are the three big ones. Um, later, we have other things that come into the, into the forest. And there is where you can say that Mexico had a very important influence on the United States and on other parts of the world. And that it was in Mexico that you have such an, a powerful development of this idea that marijuana caused violent madness, that marijuana was the most dangerous and powerful of all of these drugs. In Mexico, in fact, there was a kind of gateway theory 100 years ago, but the gateway was that you would start with alcohol and tobacco and then move on to opium, and then if you were really, really uh, degenerate, you would wind up using marijuana. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. so, um, so those that's where you could say that Mexico had the very important influence on making marijuana one of the big three targets of the uh, of the 20th century war on drugs. And that's a- yeah. And let's sort of, in the interest of time, take this up to today. And so towards the end of the book, you ask a question. You say, why do policymakers, despite the enormous evidence that the drug war cannot succeed, mm-hmm. continue to insist that the fight must go on? What's your answer to this question? Well, I think there are um, a few different levels um, I mean, in, in part, I'm here actually right now. I'm in in Oakland, California, uh, which is kind of the center of uh, ground zero of major drug reform. Um, and um, I've been down in Oaksterdam and talking to people around there. And um, and uh, uh, a friend of mine here was explaining to me that uh, one of the major problems is, you know, some of these things are very practical. So there's an enormous amount of institutional um, inertia. Uh, there's so many uh, agencies. And um, and you know uh, um, associations and uh, everything else you know bureaucracies that are reliant on the war on drugs that there's an enormous enormous amount of inertia number one um, that's not so surprising there are a lot of people who are you know reliant on the revenues that come from the war on drugs uh, police forces and prisons and all those things and most of your listeners are probably familiar with those um, you know those ideas. Um, I'm also, though, I think that there's also very deep, deep deep-seated 
uh, attitudes and ideas about this stuff that goes deep, way, way back, deep into history, the kind of thing that I'm, I'm writing about in my book. Things that go back to the, you know, these conflicts over religion and, uh, and the relationship between medicine and the supernatural and so on and so forth. And I think all those things are very deep-seated in people's um, minds and are, are, you know, and we're reminded of them in very subtle cultural ways. And that's the kind of thing that's very hard to put your finger on and probably political scientists aren't especially interested in. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, mm-hmm. these kinds of things are also important, this deep-seated ideology that we have related to these drugs. And of course there are things that are, are, are a more recent issue in this basic vein. So the fact that marijuana becomes such a, you know, important symbol in the culture wars, for example, in the United States in the last 30 or 40 years has, of course, you know, will lead a lot of people to be very reluctant to, um, uh, you know, change their mind about policy simply because what marijuana symbolizes, right? Um, so I think all these things are working together to um, continue to maintain a policy that almost every serious scholar, independent scholar who's gone on and studied has said it's a failure, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite a um, an interesting puzzle, but I also think it's going to be very hard to um, unravel because there are so many aspects of uh, of what's holding it in place. Yeah, I think it's it's for that reason that that political scientists who often uh, truncate the story, truncate the history, can learn a lot about not just the specific area, but also about ways in which to study um, deep entrenched issues and problems, mm-hmm. and that the way in which you approach this as a historian is, is in fact, I think, methodologically and in, in sort of in terms of attitude towards the sh- subject, something that political science really could learn a lot about. So, Isaac Campbell, thank you very much. Oh, well. uh, it was a real pleasure to hear about the book. Uh, your book, Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs, was published this year by the University of North Carolina Press. It's available at their website and on Amazon. Thank you again, Isaac, very much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.